Today's passage is 1 Samuel 11. We return back to the book of 1 Samuel today. And we're going to be looking at the first 11 verses. If you turn there, remember that this is God's holy, inspired, and errant word. Let's stand as we read this passage together. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days' respite, then we may send messengers throughout all the territory of Israel. And if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. The messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, and they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What's, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh, and the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whatever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. And when he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot you shall have salvation. And when the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day, Saul put the people into three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning, watch, and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. Let's pray. Father, I pray that this passage that probably may be unfamiliar to some would become a key lesson today in our own dealings with the world, the devil, and more. Lord, help us to be willing to hear what you would speak to us through your spirit this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, undoubtedly, this passage likely appears to most of you as a It's a fairly dry battle narrative with maybe some interesting details like Nahash's command that the men of Jabesh put out their right eyes. But there is more here than meets the eye, pun intended. When we realize how the Bible often uses war and battle to illustrate the Christian life. So let's see what we can learn from this particular moment in Israel's history. And I think we'll do that first by understanding the context. So Samuel has crowned Saul king at Mitzpah and then sent everyone home, including Saul. Saul returned to Gibeah, but with him went what chapter 10 described as men of valor. 
And Gibeah was a town of approximately a small size, three miles north of Jerusalem. And while there, Saul learned that the Ammonites, who were led by a man named Nahash, had attacked Jabesh-Gilead. That was a village east of the Jordan River. Now, if you remember your Old Testament history, you'll remember that as the tribes were coming out of Egypt during the Exodus, before they crossed the Jordan, there were three tribes, Reuben, Gab, Reuben, Gab, Reuben Gad, and Manasseh, that had asked if they could settle there east of the Jordan. And so they did. They took that whole valley area, and Jabesh-Gilead was in the territory of Manasseh. Well, the Ammonites, who threatened to come back and wipe out Jabesh-Gilead, were descendants of Ammon, one of the sons of Lot through incest. And thus the Ammonites were cousins, if you will, cousins to the Israelites. And despite their blood relationship, when Israel left from Egypt under Moses, the Ammonites, according to Deuteronomy 23, refused to give them food or water, and God later told Israel that as a consequence, no Ammonite through the 10th generation could enter the assembly of the Lord. Amos 1.1 has this to say about the Ammonites. It says, for three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead that they might enlarge their border. Uh, We don't know if this event is the same as the invasion of Gilead during Saul's time, but many believe that it is. So cruel, brutal. Another factor that might be at play here is an interesting event in Judges 21. That chapter records how the tribe of Benjamin had rebelled against the other tribes, and that resulted in a civil war. And so the tribe of Benjamin ends up losing the battle, and the other tribes refuse to allow their women to intermarry with the Benjamites. But that, of course, creates a problem, because even the rest of the tribes understand how, how is the tribe of Benjamin going to survive with no wives. And so this is what we read in Judges 21, verse 8. It says, they said, what one is there of the tribes of Israel that didn't come up to the Lord, to Mitzvah? to help fight in this civil war. And behold, no one had come to the camp from Jabesh-Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were mustered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead were there. So the congregation sent 12,000 of their bravest men there and commanded them, go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead with the edge of the sword, also the women and the little ones. And this is what you shall do. Every male and every woman that is lain with a male, you shall devote to destruction. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with them. And they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Then the whole congregation sent word to the people of Benjamin who were at the rock of Rimon and proclaimed peace to them. And Benjamin returned at that time And they gave them the women whom they had saved alive of the women of Jabesh-Gilead, but they were not enough for them. And the people had compassion on Benjamin, because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. Now, this is not, we already have gone through the book of Judges. This is not an opportunity to really think through, was that the right solution 
uh, up at Jabesh Gilead. But the point that I wanted to make is I want you to notice that it is the women of Jabesh Gilead that become the wives of the tribe of Benjamin, including the women of Saul's own town of Gibeah. And if you stop and you think about that for a moment, this is not much later than the events of Judges 21. It's a few generations later. And so the people living in Gibeah, they're related to the people at Jabesh Gilead. Does that make sense? Their great-great-grandmothers came from Jabesh Gilead. So they're kind of uh, blood relatives, a few generations removed. And so it's understandable that Saul is angered by the news of this Ammonite invasion. But to be most accurate, I think we have to recognize that verse 6 of our passage says that the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his great anger was greatly kindled, which really is to say it's more accurate that God was angered and that he moved upon Saul to be his instrument of vengeance. Because we've already learned a few weeks ago that Saul did not want to be king, that he was not a believer, and so this righteous anger has to be of the Lord. So what is the whole section in the first part of of the passage about? Those of Gilead asked to make a peace treaty with the Ammonites, and Nahash asks for their right eyes. Why? Well, first notice in verse 2 that Nahash wanted to bring disgrace upon all of Israel. So the demand to gouge out their eye is intended to humiliate the people. That's part of it. But second, Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, makes an interesting comment on this passage. He says that warriors in ancient Israel fought in formation with interlocking shields and their left eye was covered by the shield, most of them being right-handed. And so what he says is that the reason to demand that the right eye be gouged out is to say that their soldiers will be unable to fight, but still able to work as slave laborers. And so Nahash wanted nothing less than to both humiliate the Gileadites, disgrace God, and make the people permanently ineffective. And we may be shocked by that type of demand and tempted to cry foul, right? Neville Chamberlain, anyone know that name? Those of you studying history of England during the years before World War II was constantly shocked by Germany's aggressive moves under the leadership of Hitler. And he kept traveling to Germany to try to negotiate peaceful terms. But it, all, it became laughable to the other nations of the world in a sad way because every time he would leave, then Hitler would just, after having agreed to terms, go and break them and invade the next country. He relied on Chamberlain's sense of fair play, of his sense of his unwillingness, I should say, to engage in war, And he took advantage of that for his own ambitions. And we need to be realistic in that we live not in a world of fair play and neutrality. 
We tend to think that as long as we mind our business and keep our heads down, that we'll be left alone, but that simply isn't true. And as soon as Christians cry out for peace with the world, like the Jabesh Gileadites did with the Ammonites, they discover that the world wants to humiliate them, wants to make them permanently ineffective. No, the scriptures do not describe life as a resort or as a neutral playing ground. Far from it. Life is war, right? In 1 Timothy 1.18, Paul writes, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. By rejecting what? I think part of it is rejecting the fact that this is war. Paul calls our war a good one. And what is that? Well, look at Ephesians 6. You're familiar with this. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, stand firm. You see, we tend to live with a peacetime mentality. Or at least we try to convince ourselves that peace with the world is possible. In times of peace, people give themselves to luxury and leisure and pleasure. They focus on wants and desires and comforts. But in times of war, people live with a different focus, don't they? A factory that produced giant 72-inch OLED televisions for Black Friday is converted to produce electronic equipment for battle. The assembly line that produces luxury cars produces tanks. Young men go to military training instead of going to school. And the point is, there is a war out there, and it is being fought for your hearts, the hearts of your children. It is fought for the control of your souls. And each situation that you face today is a battle in that war, so be careful and be aware of those battles. Do not forget that there is a scheming enemy. There is a Nahash out there who is out to deride, divide, destroy. He wants to gouge out your right eye. And when we read about spiritual warfare in the New Testament, we find that the Authors rely heavily upon these Old Testament models of Israel and the various wars that they fought. Paul, for example, speaks of the church fulfilling the role of Israel as God's army of warriors, dedicated to his kingdom and reliant upon his power. And God's people are now engaged with enemies, and and as Paul wrote in that passage in Ephesians, principalities, powers, spiritual forces of evil, heavenly realms, They're under the direction of their leader, the devil, who storms the gates of the kingdom. And the church has been outfitted in spiritual armor and finds her strength in the Lord and in his word. And I think it's hard for us to to picture that. 
We live in a time in, in which the most popular topic in today's Christian books is God's grace. You'll find very few books calling the church to war. And certainly very few that describe God as a warrior. But while our God is a God of grace and of mercy and of comfort, he is also a God of holiness and justice and might. He is the King of kings. And his creation either worships him or in rebellion worships something else. And it's the same with Jesus. Yes, Jesus is described as Savior, but he is also described as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. So warfare is a reality for Christians. And it was undoubtedly shocking for the Gileadites to hear Nahash's demand, just as it is shocking for Christians today. It's especially as we just celebrated Thanksgiving and prepare for Christmas. I mean, this is a time of joy, isn't it? The world is at war with us. Absolutely. And it's not just at war with us. It wants to humiliate you. It wants to dishonor God. The Bible calls Satan the accuser of the brethren, the deceiver of the whole world, the great dragon. Father of lies, God of this world, a liar, a murderer, prince of the power of the air, the ruler of this world, the ancient serpent, the tempter. He is accompanied by all the demonic forces that fell with him. John Calvin wrote, we have been forewarned that an enemy relentlessly threatens us. An enemy who is the very embodiment of rash boldness, of military prowess, of crafty wiles, of untiring zeal and haste, of every conceivable weapon and of skill in the science of warfare. He does not sleep. He does not rest. And the campaign against you and against the church has been going on for millennia. You know that. You've seen the fruit of the rotten tree that has been making itself. I mean, suddenly it's in full bloom in the last 10 years in particular of what he has been working on for the last several decades. And it's relentless. You turn on to any television channel. Well, I guess it's not a television channel anymore. It's a streaming broadcast, right, of, of any of the networks. And you will find the newest programs. Every single episode, it seems, is trying to cater to the new rotten fruit. Always trying to make a point. And so we are told to stand our ground in combat. To be at war. And yet we want peace because we want to go about our work. We want to go about our schooling. We want to go about our homemaking. We just want to be left alone and do our duties. Combat is for people who want to fight in the military. Let's send our soldiers to fight. Right? Well, we stay at home at peace. But as we read in Ephesians 6, our conflict is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of wickedness. And that battle is being waged 
on a cosmic scale, on a grand scale between Satan and the Lord, but it finds its way into your life. And the focus of that warfare is the destruction of Christ's work. When Saul and those at Gibeah learned how the Ammonites had threatened their relatives in Jabesh-Gilead, they were moved to anger. Verse 7 of our passage says that the dread of the Lord fell upon the people. That's important because it's not just that the people were incensed at this horrific demand of Nahash. It wasn't that they were dreading the Ammonites and what consequences might flow out of failing to respond to them. It was a dread of the Lord that moved them to action. And it reminds me that we aren't fighting for ourselves. We aren't fighting for ourselves. We are just saying, you know, if we don't fight now, then it's going to come to my home next. And in the next few years, it's going to spread throughout, you know, it's not just California anymore. It'll, it'll spread out to Idaho. It'll spread out to te- Texas of all places. It'll flow out to Florida. We are just fighting for ourselves, friends, and trying to preserve territory. We are taking up the flag of the kingdom of God. We carry the banner of the Lord of hosts. And when the dread of the Lord, which refers to a holy awe of the righteous purity of God, comes upon us, we are awakened from our slumber. And we are moved, as verse 7 says, as one man for the man, Jesus Christ. According to our passage, Saul sent messengers to the people of Jabesh-Gilead and told them that the next day they would have salvation. So on one day, these Gileadites are wondering if all is lost. The next day, they are rejoicing that the Ammonites are routed. And God has promised the same to his people. The devil and all that he uses may seem overwhelming, but the devil is not God. God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. The devil is not. God can do anything he wishes to do. The devil, like the rest of us, can do only what God permits him to do. This is God's universe. This is not the devil's. Not even hell is the devil's. God has created hell as a place where he will one day place Satan. And those who follow after him. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere at once. David said, where can I flee from your presence? You know that passage. Everywhere he names, from the highest height to the lowest depth, from in the sea, up in the air, God is there. That cannot be said of Satan. He must either tempt one person in one place at one time, or he must extend his influence through one of other spiritual beings. The result is that although the devil's influence is widespread, it is probably the case that neither you nor anyone that you know has ever been tempted by the devil directly. In fact, in all the Bible, we know of only six individuals that were tempted by Satan himself. Eve, but not Adam, Job, Jesus Christ, Judas, Peter, Ananias, but not his wife, Sapphira. No doubt there have been many others, but these are the only ones the Bible tells us specifically. God is omniscient. 
He knows everything. That's untrue of Satan, who does not know everything. Even though he knows a great deal and is a shrewd guesser, far smarter than we are. But the ways of God must constantly surprise him. And he certainly has no more certainty about what is going to happen in the future than we have. So we have to be realistic. Satan is a powerful foe, but he, and he is behind all of the nahashes that you face today, and yet you are not to tremble before him. Nor are you to be without hope, because God has given you salvation. And you are to stand boldly. I like the way Martin Luther saw it. He saw the world as standing against him, and behind the terrifying powers of the material world stood the even more terrifying powers of the devil. And, and yet Luther writes in his famous hymn, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness, grim. But we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. And what is that one little word? It is the powerful word of God. And as Luther goes on to say, the spirits and the gifts are ours through him who with us scytheth, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth. Abideth still, his kingdom is forever. So Luther, realistic enough to know the devil, his forces are capable of stirring up such hatred against God's saints that we may well indeed lose goods, we may lose kindred, our family, even our own lives, but in this warfare, God is sovereign. And his truth and his kingdom will prevail. Now, most of you have heard these things or something similar to that before. You know that the Bible describes life as a spiritual war. But outside of the important need of being reminded of that fact, the concept of warfare is still too abstract. I remember as a kid reading passages like Ephesians 6 that we read earlier in the armor of God. And and I like to memorize the armor, the shield, the faith, the breastplate of righteousness. The sword of the word of God, of the spirit. And then I would think, what, what exactly does all of that mean? I couldn't really picture what spiritual forces shooting fiery darts while I held up a shield of faith looked like. I couldn't imagine who or what was the Nahash in my life. And so, on an everyday basis, what does that spiritual war look like? What is it really? Well, you may be surprised by the answer. Because the spiritual war that you face every day, probably in its greatest measure, is not outside of you. But it's inside of you. In his letter to the church, James writes about how Christians constantly lose battles because in their hearts is bitter jealousy, And selfish ambition. Look at James 3, 15 to 16. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. It is earthly. 
It is unspiritual. It is demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every vile practice. Did you see what James says? Every vile practice. In the next chapter in James 4.1, we read, What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You see, our temptation is to think this is the, the, the threat's all external, that it is the ever-deviating and deviant culture and society. And there are external threats. But ultimately, the majority of this war that you are facing on a day-to-day basis is inside of you. Whether it's between two persons, two nations, it's ultimately caused, James suggests, by jealousy and selfish ambition. And what is the opposite of that? It is contentment, joy, self-forgetfulness. When we talk about war, we talk about battles to be fought and won. And winning battles is is not about holding up your shield of faith and taking cover as if you just need to defensively withstand the onslaught of the enemy. If my faith is just big enough, it'll be a tower shield. It won't be this little tiny shield in my hand. No, the war that you've been called to fight and wage is actually something you are supposed to win. That means you need to be Fighting aggressively, not defensively, offensively for that contentment, joy, and self-forgetfulness. To prefer anything above Jesus is the essence of sin, and therefore you fight for these things because your discontentment, your jealousy, your self-seeking is the breeding ground for every evil, as James says. Are you restless? Are you discontent? If so, then you are being made ineffective by the enemy. And this idea of contentment in particular is an interesting concept, particularly in the Greek, because the word that is translated in the English sometimes as contentment is autarkia, which that same term can also mean sufficiency, as you can see here in 2 Corinthians 9, where it says, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency, could synonymize that with contentment in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So here's what I'm trying to say. To truly seek peace is not to try to make compromises with the nahashas of your life. The devil, the world, your flesh, they want you incapacitated. In their mind, there is only surrender and death. If you want peace, then you must fight to calm that discontentment. And what 2 Corinthians 9 and other passages like it suggest is that to be Joyfully satisfied is to have all that you need in all things, in all times. And where and when is that going to happen? Have you had your needs met through money? 
Have you had them met through success or your family or through being busy? What you learn in the Christian life is that the only way to have your needs met is through Christ in God's sufficiency and timing. And based on that definition, can Americans ever be content? Can they ever be satisfied? Can they ever be at peace? No. Not without Christ. And unfortunately, while most won't admit this fact, they know that deep in their restless, jealous, self-centered hearts. And like Nahash, they would rather destroy and bring disgrace upon Christians and God's church than allow them to be content when they themselves cannot. And that's the way all of the Nahashas of this world are, because their way is ultimately of the devil, who also wants nothing but the disgrace and dishonoring of God. So if you want to know where the battle for your heart is being fought, it is right there. Why are you losing those battles so often? I'll give you two quick reasons. Two ways that you've been likely fighting ineffectively. First, you may be losing battles because you are trying to overcome those, that dissatisfaction by the power of your will. You tell yourself, I should be satisfied. I should be satisfied. I shouldn't desire what others have. But it doesn't work because the will is weak. Perhaps you've failed so many times in the battle between your will and your flesh that you've simply resigned yourself to being discontent and dissatisfied. A second reason that you may be losing battles is because you think that when you lack the will to say no, that it's better just to deprive yourself than to struggle and lose. Have you had much success in canceling out the desires of your flesh by removing the opportunities to indulge yourself? Does it really remove the temptation? Or are you left asking like Paul does in Romans 7, 24, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And the answer is in Paul's question. It's not what will deliver me, but who? will deliver me. We cannot deliver ourselves. We cannot win these battles through either willpower or deprivation. Only Jesus Christ can deliver us. But how does Christ deliver you? Does he take away your desires? No. And this is important. The reason you lose so many battles in the spiritual war that you face is that the devil gives you false promises. He gives you promises to meet those desires. And so the, those kinds of false promises are not met by learning to say no necessarily or depriving yourself altogether, but rather they are defeated by the better promises of God. God's promises are real and eternal and better. The world's promises are false. They're empty. 
If you listen to Jonathan Edwards, he says, we come with double forces against the wicked to persuade them to a godly life. Listen to what he's saying. He's saying, we, we come to the lost and we try to persuade them of a godly life. And we tell them about how profitable Christianity is. He says, but alas, the wicked man is not in pursuit of profit. He doesn't want to be convinced that this is a wiser, better course of action. It is pleasure he seeks, says Edwards. Now then, we will fight them with their own weapons. Now he realized, as many others have realized after him, that we must fight promise with promise. Empty pleasure with superior pleasure. The true, abiding, deep, everlasting joy in God is the only power that can defeat the deceitful pleasures of the flesh. And that is how the sword of the Spirit, God's Word, actually sets you free. Perhaps like me, as I described earlier, when you have read passages like Ephesians 6, and you've heard about things like spiritual war, you've wondered, okay, So I have this sword, which is the sword of the Spirit, the sword of the Word of God. What do I do with this sword? Is it it telling me that I need to memorize passages? Is it saying that I need to read the Bible a lot so that I'm ready to answer questions and share the Gospel? Yes, that's part of it. But more foundationally, you must recognize that in this war that you fight daily, a war in which the enemy wants to make you ineffective by gouging out your right eye, the one that, the war that in which he is offering you empty promises and a false peace, that the fight is won by matching empty promises with better ones, and those better ones are found in the sword. They're found in the Word of God. And so I want you to imagine that the double-edgedness of the sword of the Spirit cuts both ways. It both exposes and brings down external falsehood. But it also cuts backwards. It performs internal surgery of the heart. We talk about falling upon the sword. Well, we need to fall upon the sword of God. We need to bring the sharp sword of the Lord, of the Spirit, to bear upon our own souls so that that old man of flesh is cut away. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus promises, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. There is nothing the devil in the world can offer you that matches that. Psalm 36.8 tells us that God gives us to drink from the river of his delight. Psalm 4.7 says, You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. See, those are the types of promises that the world offers. Full wine, full grain. And you'll find a hundred more passages like those. And then we see James 4.4, 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is of enmity with God? Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And if you think about that for a moment, James 
who, as we read earlier, said that bitter jealousy and self-ambition lead to every evil thing, calls the jealous, discontent, self-centered man an adulterer. And jealousy, dissatisfaction, self-centered pride, they're adultery because the, self, the satisfaction and the rest that the heart should be getting from God's sufficiency is sought from somewhere else. That's why some say that the greatest weapon of the devil is that false promise. Because your enemy wants you to become an adulterer, an idolater. Don't let that happen. If God is the greatest good and of infinite value, then you should desire him. And you should make whatever sacrifice is required to attain and enjoy him forever. And trust me, if you're doing that, then you are a mighty warrior. Does that make sense as we bring closure to this circle? If you are desiring God, if you are desiring his promises that are the superior promises, if you are finding your delight in him, then you are, by definition, a mighty warrior and winning this battle. Because you have something that no one of the world has. You have true peace and true joy. And it is what breathes life into the concepts of righteousness and truth and holiness and faith and more that are the spiritual armor of God. The enemy would like nothing better than to make you an adulterer who idolizes a false peace. Because that will in turn make you an enemy of God. So don't do it. <laughs> don't do it. This is war. And at the end of the day, that's what Nahash and every enemy like him really wants. He wants you to be an adulterer and dishonor God. And the Lord calls you instead, delight in me. And then you will be ready to fight. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your mercies towards us and the call in your word to delight in you, to find our sufficiency in you, and perhaps we've never made that connection between the internal fight for joy and satisfaction in your sufficiency and these various passages that we've read about that deal with war and conflict and all the things that make us ineffective. Lord, perhaps there are many of us that have been restless and dissatisfied, and yet we think that by engaging in all types of external busyness that we're fighting for the kingdom, and yet we are from the very first step made ineffective. Lord, help us to understand today what comes first. We will not effectively or clearly with discernment, fight the external battles that wage around us if we have not first conquered ourselves. And so I pray that 
for understanding today. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, sometimes the my weakness is to say too much to try to pack too many things into a time and sharing with you and, and at the danger of losing the major point. And as I was praying, that really is, if, if there was going to be something I wanted you to leave with today, that's what I want you to leave with you is can't fight the external battles well and with discernment until we have first conquered ourselves. And God has, God has blessed us by giving us this moment every week to, to settle down, to, to call, be calm in the midst of whatever restlessness we find ourselves, whether that's external or internal. I know that many of you are out fighting the external battles of the enemy. And Psalm 23 talks about how God, as a good shepherd, leads us through a variety of different environments. He's leading us to the green pastures. He's leading us to the good food, but sometimes that requires traveling through the valley of the shadow of death. But even in that, he is with us. And even in that process, he establishes and sets up a table in the midst of our enemies. And we occasionally come back to that picture of the table, of that table set up in the midst of our enemies. I think it's appropriate for today to recognize that as you fight this war, God every week invites you to come and sit down for a moment. Remember, recenter yourselves. Remember what is important. It is God's sufficiency as symbolized in the blessing of this table that he sent his son who died for us, who bore our sin, and made it possible that we should be able to live. And that's the heart, like I said, of being content, satisfied, and winning the battle. So I invite you to do that today. I invite you to sit at the table, to enjoy God's sufficiency as you eat of the bread and the cup and realize whatever grain and wine that the world offers cannot beat this. This is a foreshadowing of the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is eternal. Amen. Amen. Well, we, if you're visiting with us today, a couple things. One, this meal is for all who are in covenant with God. That includes all those who have professed and proclaimed Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Includes them, includes their baptized children, and we invite you, even if you are not a member of this body, as long as you're not under discipline in another church from the table to join us 
if you are part of that definition. If you're not, then please be bold, courageous, let this pass by you, but we look forward to the time when you will join us in the meal as fellow brother and sister. Also, just logistically, we'll be, Dave and I will be going down one side of the room on either aisle, and then we'll come down here. If you would send a representative of your household to either side of the row to get enough for your family, we will give that to you. And when we come by with the trays, the purple cups are grape juice and the clear cups are wine. All right, let me pray for us. Father, as we partake of this meal and remember that you have set a table up in the midst of our enemies, we are so thankful that as vicious as that battle seems at times, as intent as these enemies are that they should want to destroy us, that there is this moment of calm and rest in which you say, sit and eat. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be nourished and encouraged by this moment as we eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Lord, your promise is the best. Your grace is better than anything that the world offers. Thank you, Lord, for extending that to us through Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.